Well, this afternoon being the uh, fifth Sunday of the month of October, which mean being the fifth Sunday of a month that has such number of Sundays, uh, we are in our fifth Sunday series, uh, which will be the last one for 2022, uh, walking through prayer, talking about prayer in particular, um, looking at it from the standpoint of the disciples' prayer that we see in Matthew chapter 6 and also in parallel in the Gospel of Luke oftentimes called the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> Look, there's been a lot, there were a lot of prayers that our Lord prayed, so I like to call this the Disciples' Prayer. The prayer He's given to us as His disciples as a way to pray. Uh, today we'll be looking at the first petition. But before we do that, let's hear uh, from the text in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. And when, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us pray. Our Father, we rejoice in the fact that you've given us your word. And we rejoice that you speak to us through these words. And we ask, O oh Father, that you would take what we have just heard and plant it deep within us. And specifically now today as we study this text, we pray that you would guide us into truth, in particular what it means when we are asking, hallowed be your name. We ask, O oh Father, that you would lead us in this, that that which we learn will be true, true according to your word. We ask, Father, that you would work in each of us according to your will and according to your purpose. We ask, O oh Father, that you would work in this preacher, that you would chain him to the truth that is your word, so that he might freely declare your truth, and to do so with accuracy, with understanding, with clarity. And these things we pray, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at prayer, just as a brief review, it's often very hard work. Prayer is sometimes some of the most difficult work that we do, maybe because we don't know how we should pray for somebody or something, or because we are often overcome with guilt because we don't think, because we are probably not doing it enough. I would venture to say all of us are not praying as much as we ought to. Oftentimes, it's also driven by a sense of law detached from grace. When I was a young Christian, I made a, a vow to the Lord that I was going to pray an hour a day, and I was going to get up 
before the rooster crowed, so to speak, and spend that hour in prayer. And so I opened up, I got up at that hour, and I, before I did anything else, I read a few scriptures, and then I began to pray. And then about an hour and a half later, I woke up. And I was overcome with guilt. When we understand prayer, we need to understand it as a great privilege that God has given to us. It is something by which we <clears throat> is not, it is a gift of grace, for in it is God, a means that God has given us to strengthen our faith. Prayer is an act of thanksgiving. For we learned in Psalm 116, in saying that the Lord has delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. This is verses 8 through 14. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed. Even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I set on my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. We see that a fundamental means by which we express to God thanksgiving for his many benefits to us is to ask for more benefits. To ask him to do more. That kind of flies in the face of what we think it should be. But it's expressing to God our understanding of who he is and how and what we are. It's an expression of God's sufficiency and we approach him with boldness because of the grace of jesus christ as an act of thanksgiving for many different reasons that we've already looked at whether it's dependence upon god it's an act of obedience it expresses faith in christ and it's a language of humility and we see from this text that we read when we look at prayer and ways that we approach it wrongly, sometimes we put time limits or time minimums upon it. But if you look in Scripture for something that says you must pray no more than this amount or you must pray at minimum this amount, you will find silence other than it says to pray continuously, to pray at all times. Nor is prayer formulaic. It's not, as we saw in the text, because of saying just the right words in the right order at the right time. For example, we often think that, sometimes we might think that a prayer, if we spend an hour in prayer and then we don't use three words at the end, the prayer is no, is no longer effective, using those three words in Jesus' name. That's not a formula, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Rather, it's a statement of saying, through Jesus Christ, we are praying on his merits. One can say in Jesus' name, thinking that God's hearing me because, hey, man, I did pretty good today. And we're not praying in Jesus' name when we do that. And nor are our prayers heard on account of their eloquence and precision. They're heard because of the merits of Jesus and by the work of the Spirit. Now looking at the disciples' prayer, just to cover briefly what we've covered. We saw last week the address, our Father in heaven, and the significant, not last week, last month, our Father who is in heaven, that we approach God as Father and that He is heavenly, and that there's six petitions. Today we're looking at the first one, hallowed be your name. 
as well as your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses and lead us not into temptation. Those are shortened shortened versions of them that I just stated. With the concluding words, for yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. And so we'll be looking at hallowed be your name today. But when we approach this bears repeating, when we address God as our father, it's teaching us about our relationship with God, that we have been adapted in, adopted into his household. We are his children and we approach him as his children, his heirs and his beloved. We do not approach him as criminals, though we are in and of ourselves criminals. But we are approaching him as children and thus have an open invitation to come before him. But nor is it just simply like an earthly father, but this is a, we approach him as a heavenly father. That is, he is able to do that which we cannot do for ourselves as he is not constrained to time and space. But also with the word father in heaven, it also orients our mind and heart to where our hope and citizenship truly lie. Our citizenship and our hope is not fundamentally an earthly hope. It is not about having our best life now. Notwithstanding a best-selling book by that title. Rather, it's an otherworldly hope. And also with the word our, it tells us something else. While our earthly familial bonds are important, that our family bonds are important, you know, mother and son, and father and son, and brother and sister within the context of a household. They are not absolute and eternal. Those bonds are not eternal bonds, nor are ethnic bonds eternal bonds. Rather, we have an eternal and absolute family bond with believers from all times and all places. I have more in common with the believer who's living in a hut somewhere in the plains of a faraway land than an unbeliever who is at my place in life, who is very much like me in other ways than my relationship to Christ. He may look like me, he may talk like me, but he is not like me because he does not have Christ. It is the same with you and the same with me. So today we look at the first petition, a request. That's what a petition is. It's a request. It's asking of God, asking God to do something. And oftentimes when we look at this first petition, we look at it primarily as the act of praise, giving praise to God. And while that is part of it, that's actually the result of the petition. The petition is asking this, hallowed be your name hallowed be your name we're asking god that his name would be hallowed we're asking whatever hallowed means that would be true of his name well truly that is actually as we're going to learn truly that is already true of his name but here we're asking that it would be regarded as hallowed. And we'll talk about what that word means in a minute. But let's look at 
what some have said about what this is saying in church history. We see in the looking at uh, some documents that came out of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, We can see in the Westminster tradition it says this, which is also similar to the Baptist Catechism, asking what do we pray in the first petition? In the first petition we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify Him and all that whereby He makes Himself known that He would dispose all things to His own glory. A longer version says this, in the first petition, Acknowledging the utter inability and indisposition that is in ourselves and all men to honor God aright, we pray that God would by his grace enable and incline us and others to know, to acknowledge, and to highly to esteem him, his titles, attributes, ordinances, word, works, and whatsoever he is pleased to make himself known by, to glorify him in thought, word, and deed, that he would prevent and remove Atheism, ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, and whatsoever is dishonorable to him, that by his overruling providence is direct and dispose of all things to his own glory. That's the longer version of that shorter one. Basically, it says that the Lord would enable us to honor him and that also that others would honor him. Expressing the fact that we are unable to do so apart from his help. Another one, the Heidelberg Catechism, says the first petition is this, to enable us rightly to know you and to hallow, magnify, and praise you in all your works in which shine forth your power, wisdom, goodness, justice, mercy, and truth. And likewise, so to order our whole life in thought, word, and work that your name may not be blasphemed, but honored and praised on our account. John Calvin says of this, that the name of God is his renown, with which he is celebrated among men. We pray then that his glory may be exalted above all and in all things. Then he says, but does this mean that the glory of God can be increased or decreased? No, but this means that it may be manifested as it ought to be, that all the works which God performs may appear glorious, as indeed they are, so that he himself may be glorified. In every way. So having just heard what others have said, and largely these, all these folks are uh, saying very much similar things, let's look at the words of the text. First of all, we hear the word hallowed, be your, hallowed, and then we say hallowed what? Be your name. So there's two parts to this request. There is for something to be hallowed and for what that something is. That something is God's name. And of course, it is to be hallowed. Now, to make sense of that, we have to know what this word hallowed means and the significance of the word His name. The thing that is requested is for for God's name to be hallowed. So we're going to look at each of these two parts. First of all, your name. When we look at God's name, this has everything to do with who he is. That is, with his nature, his character, his glories, his purposes, his attributes. In Judaism, 
one of the ways by which God is referred, in, even in uh, pre-Christ Judaism, was referred to not only as Adonai, but also as Hashem. Hashem, as Hebrew, simply means the name. The name. So his name is not just a title. My name, Mark Harrison Barr, if you didn't know my middle name, you do now know it. Mark Harrison Barr has three parts to it. First name, Mark, depending on which language you're drawing the name from, could mean either hammer or warrior. My last name, Barr, is a northern German way of saying bear. My, well, Barr, regardless of which part of Germany, Switzerland, or, or Holland, the Netherlands want to say it, it means bear. They just all spell it differently. And then the middle name Harrison means son of Harry, which is another way of saying Henry. And Henry is the ruler of the home or an estate ruler. We might say a prince. I am none of those things. I'm not a hammer nor a warrior. I am not a prince, at least in the ordinary sense of the word. Nor am I a bear. I had the unenviable assignment in my junior year of high school, or maybe it was middle school, I don't remember, but to come up with a sentence that is indicative of the meaning of my whole name. And so I came up with, I am a prince who killed a bear with a hammer. But I am none of those things. For us, when we think of our names, they're largely titles. They're ways in which we refer to one another. There are some people whose name reflects who they are, but that's not a universal thing. Sometimes parents will name a child in view of, I really hope they become this. Or sometimes they will name their children in view of them all beginning with A's or C's or K's or so forth and so on. But that's not true of God's name. God's name tells us who he is. His name tells us who he is. The first time we see in the scriptures God giving us his name is to Moses on Mount Sinai when he encounters God in the form of the bush that was burning and was not extinguished or made less. Of course, God speaks to Moses and says, go back to Egypt and set my people free. Go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go. And it's a bit comedic the way it's a bit uh, comedic the way Moses tries to get out of it, in which he keeps making objections, and God answers each one of those objections. And one of the objections was, "Okay, so so who am I going to tell sent me?" And they say, uh, "Go to the people of Israel," and they say, "Who sent you?" Say, "Well, tell them, I am that I am. I am that I am." In the Hebrew, it's Yichia Asher Yichia. I'm not going to go into the, all the science behind that or the lettering. But you, but you heard the Yichia and the Yichia and the Asher in between. The Asher, you probably say, okay, that's probably that. And the others are the I am. Well, that's actually an expanded way of what we know as Yahweh. 
you take all you take those three words and cram them together and you essentially get YHWH in the English lettering what we call Yahweh or was pronounced before Jehovah his name in which he is revealing himself as the one who is what he is you think of Israel in its place been 400 years since they went to Egypt and they're enslaved. Who sent me? He says, I am that I am. Meaning the one who spoke to Abraham 400 years ago, the one who made those promises is still the one who made those promises and he has not changed. He is everything that he is. He is what he is. And he's always all of that. Indicating he's one who keeps his word. He's one who is able to do everything he said he's going to do because he is the one who is. And we see him speaking of himself throughout the scripture by various different names, which are translated into, uh, which have different Hebrew backings behind him. But we see the Lord, if you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's referring to the the YHWH, which is Yahweh. If you see it in all, you know, big L and then O-R-D in capital letters, but smaller O-R-D, that's his name. The reason that is done is because uh, the people who gave us, who compiled the Hebrew text, um, the Masoretes, they were called, refused to give us the voweling for that because they didn't want anybody to pronounce it. And so we make a best guess. And they would just pronounce it Adonai, which means Lord. And so it was made into Lord in the translations. Adonai means Lord. Lord. But we see him speaking of himself as the Lord, our Savior, the Lord, our healer, the Lord, our provider, the Lord, our redeemer. You may remember if you've been around long enough, or maybe if you haven't been, you may have heard it, a little gospel song from i don't know which decade but jehovah jireh our provider jehovah jireh our provider okay that's means the lord our provider or yahweh yireh is how it would be said in hebrew so for god's name to be hallowed whatever hallowed means it has to do something about who he is about his name which is a reflection of who he is it declares to us who he is it has to do with who he is being hallowed or hallowed depending on what you might pronounce it now when we get to the word hallowed we ask okay so what does that word mean the word hallow is a word that in today's english is not frequently used it actually gets used more during the month of october particularly towards the end of the month than it probably gets used to the rest of the year combined with as what we call a portmanteau which is the putting together of two words into a new word taking what was known as all hallows evening and putting it all together into the word of Halloween. The word hallow is built into that day. 
So I find it interesting that we're speaking about that here during this season. See, November, and of that day, just as you may be interested in that, November 1st in the traditional church calendar is called All Hallows Day or All Saints Day. It's a recognition of the unity that believers of all times and all places have with each other through an honoring of those dead saints and remembering those who have gone before in the faith, regarding them as saints. So the word hallow has something to do with holy. Because saint means holy. It's also called, it's, it's, it's called hallows because it's in honoring the saints or holy ones. Halloween has to do with recognizing the holiness of someone or something and or setting it apart. As as a historical note, the night before All Hallows Day was often known as All Hallows Eve or All Hallows Evening, and vigils were often held to remember specific family members who had gone before, who had died. That was a frequent practice. But starting in the 16th, in the 1700s, it kind of went by the 1800s and 19, in part of the 1900s, what we know as Halloween has its roots more in the blending of Celtic, that's Scottish and Irish paganism into it, than anything else. But that's beside the point, but that simply illustrates what we mean by hallow has something to do with recognizing something as holy or setting something apart as holy. So to hallow God's name is to regard it as holy, to acknowledge it as holy, to acknowledge it as unique, to acknowledge it as other. Holy means not only morally right in everything, it also has to do with otherness being set apart, being different. It's passive now also when it comes to the one praying. It's not, I will hallow your name, but rather it is this, let your name be hallowed. Let your name be hallowed. It's asking God to be the one who does the hallowing. I-N-G. Asking God to do the work of hallowing his name. It's a request to God to work in such a way for his name to be regarded as holy, as worthy. For people to know him for who he actually is according to how he's revealed himself. For people starting with the one praying to know who God is according to how he's revealed himself and to acknowledge that and to honor that and to glorify that. It has everything to do with glory. Another way we could say it is, Lord, let your name be glorified. Taking all the meanings of it. Let your name be be glorified. So it's not first and foremost the act of praising God. It is rather, although the act of praising God is the act of hallowing His name, 
It is asking God to work in such a way that his name would be hallowed. So it's an expression of dependence. It's saying, I am unable, or we are unable to hallow your name as it ought to be. So let your name be hallowed. It's expressing to God, I want your name. We want your name to be exalted, to be glorified, to be regarded for what it actually is. So let that be done. It is from that that any praise, any exaltation, any adoration would flow. It is the act of God bringing glory to himself in and before the lives of us and others. Now, this is not primarily the act of God bringing glory to himself by virtue of his own providential acts by which he works all things to the praise of his glory. Everything is going to work to the praise of his glory. Everything is going to work to his exaltation whether we want it or not. All things exist for His glory. And He works all things, as Ephesians, says, Ephesians 1 says, to the praise of His glory. That's not primarily what it's speaking about. Because that's the glory that we don't always understand, that we don't always grasp. That's God glorifying Himself according to His own purposes by which He only knows, things that we are not privy to. Nor is it asking us or asking God to make his name more holy than it is. That is, your name isn't holy enough, so would you make your name more holy? For if God's name needs to be made more holy, then there's a problem. There's someone greater than him, and he's not truly God. Rather, what we are praying is that it would become, that it would be recognized as holy by ourselves and by others. Just as we might say, the Bible is in and of itself, it is the word of God. How we regard it does not change what it is. But it also must be, it must become to us the word of God. We must regard it as the word of God. And so God's name is holy whether someone recognizes it or not. But one must recognize and acknowledge and praise God as holy and acknowledge it as holy. God must become holy in the eyes and in the mind of ourselves and of others. And that is what, for what we are praying. R. Kent Hughes, he says, well, maybe he says, we're asking this. May you be given that unique reverence that your character and nature as father demand. That he is asking that. When we, we are asking that when we pray. 
also an, another way of thinking about this in terms of the rest of this prayer. This is the first petition. This would then seem to set the tone for the rest of the prayer. Anytime there is a conference of some sort and there's a slate of speakers and they're all speaking on kind of a similar topic, the opening speaker has an unenviable task in that he sets the tone for everything else. I was in that position one year at a meeting and I thought, I'm setting the tone for this whole thing. Well, this prayer... This petition, in reality, sets the tone for the rest of the prayer. It sets the tone. Everything in this prayer and for which we pray has everything to do with this. Let your name be hallowed. Hallowed be your name. So when we look at the second petition, let your kingdom come. Come in such a way that it exalts who he is. That his name is regarded as hallow. When it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That God would do his will in our lives. And do so in a way by which we and others hallow his name. That when we ask God to give us our daily bread. That he would do so in a way by which he glorifies himself and by which we and others praise Him. That God, in His gracious forgiveness of our sins, brings us to hallow His name. And that in our forgiving of others, we could demonstrate the graciousness of God and the grace that He has given to us, and thus His name be hallowed. In Him leading us not to evil, but to good. Him being hallowed. All things truly and indeed work to His glory. As it says in Ephesians 1, which we'll read in a little bit. And we're asking that His glory would be manifest manifest, and be recognized as such in this Prayer. And that all the things for which we pray would be guided and would be that which would he would do such a, do do those things in such a way that his name is hallowed. That recognizes him for who he is. And to say that hallowed be your name, this is all cons- also consistent with God's purpose for us. Very recently, I was asked by someone, if I were to preach a sermon on the purpose of, the person asked me this, if you were to preach a sermon on the purpose for which I exist, what would you say? And I thought about it. I already kind of knew the answer I was going to say, but I wanted to flesh it out for the person where they were, so I took a few days. But ultimately, it boiled down And I gave the answer with some explanation from an age-old answer to an uh, age-old answer from an age-old question. The question being, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You see, that is His purpose in creation, is to His glory. And, and in those who have been united to Christ by faith, who have been reunited to our original, who have been reunited to Him and our purpose in Him, to enjoy Him forever and to live in His glory. Everyone's going to glorify God whether they want to or not. But here, that we would live in the end, to the end of His glory. So this is an expression of the very reason for which we have been created and for why he, we have been redeemed. God did not create us because he needed something, because he was lacking. He created us as an expression of his glory, as an expression of who he is. He created us that we might see him for who he is and that we might enjoy him. And that's the very purpose of our redemption in him. His act of redemption is his act of glorifying himself. Sometimes we make an unhealthy distinction between God's acts of salvation and God's acts of glorifying himself. God's act of salvation is the vehicle in the scripture through which God is glorifying himself in making a people unto himself. God's purpose in creation and redemption is that. I mentioned Ephesians 1, verses 11 and 12. Listen to these words. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That he works out all things according to the counsel of his will. And in so doing, he's working to the praise of his glory. And that those who hope in him are to the praise of his glory. I was also asked by someone. This one I had to think about a little bit more to figure out a way. I knew the answer, but I had to th- I'm still thinking about the best way to say it. I was also asked, why is it that if God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, why doesn't he just have us skip all the sin and pain and just take us straight to glory? It's a magnif- because we see the magnificence of his grace. We see the magnificence of his grace in the light of all of our sinfulness. We see the praise of his glory. Christ's act of redeeming us is an act by which he glorified the Father and in so doing glorified himself as the second person of the Trinity, as the members of the Trinity are of one substance and one will. And so thus to glorify one is to glorify the others. John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. Jesus, 
here has gone into Jerusalem and he had just been, uh, some of his disciples had been asked by some Greeks. And of course, whenever I think of this passage, I get this picture in my mind. There's his disciples in their long, in their um, robes, which are kind of dingy. This is the image I have in my head. And then you have these people wearing green wreaths around their head, wearing togas, coming up to the disciples and asking him, these, asking him, where is Jesus? Take us to him. Probably didn't look like that. But they came up to him and asked, where is Jesus? And then Jesus heard that from the disciples and he was immediately disturbed. He was struggling. He said, my hour of glory is near. Because now the Gentiles are inquiring. But after that event, in John 12, verses 27 and 28, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So here we see his hope, his purpose in coming, even his death, is is the moment by which he is glorified. It is in his weakness that he was glorified and by which the Father was glorified. We even see the work of the Spirit in John chapter 16. which the Spirit is coming to us. And the Spirit is coming as our comforter, as our guide, as the one who reveals Christ to us, as the one who makes real to us the Word of God. He is coming to glorify Christ. See that in verses 12 through 15 of John chapter 16. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and he will take from take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Incidentally, if there's a a passage of scripture that very clearly declares the interrelationships of the members of the Trinity and the unity of the Godhead, of there being one essence and one will. It is this passage. For here the Spirit is declaring what has come from the Father and the Son, and all that is the Son's is also, all that the Father has is also the Son's. But we see that he is, the Spirit has come to do what? To glorify Christ. To lift up Christ. Even in the work of the Spirit in us, it has to do with glorifying God. For when the Son is glorified, so is the Father glorified. And so is the Spirit glorified. And so here we have the basic guiding principle of what hallowed is and the basic idea behind it, we may say, what is it for God's name to be hallowed? Or rather, uh, 
by whom it is to be hallowed, and how is it done? When we ask this, we're asking for ourselves to know God according to who He is. That's the first idea behind it. To know God according to who He is. Do we not learn in John chapter 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 3. It said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know him. Now, knowing him is not just simply knowing who he is according to his revelation. It is also knowing him. But one cannot... I, but if I... For instance, if I say I know my wife and I don't know what makes her tick, you know, that brings her happiness, can I really say that I know her if I don't know much about her? No, I don't. And I pray that I actually do know those things. (laughs) And so it is with God. We must know him according to who he is. I often hear people in evangelistic efforts, I will people say, well, I, I, I know God in my own way. Well, if that's not knowing God according to who he is, it would say, you know someone, but you don't know God. That something... But as one professor I would say about false teachings, that's something, but it's not Christian. It's to know God according to who He is, and it is to live and talk in ways that honor Him. So to know Him according to, he, to who He is, is in part to have true and right doctrine. The word doctrine means teaching. Doctrine that is rooted in and comes forth from the Scriptures. So thus it is also to read the Scriptures properly. There have been many people who have come up with very false teachings quoting Bible verses. Because they don't read the Bible right. That's the reason why we have articles of faith and don't just simply say we believe the Bible and leave it at that. Because if we don't read it rightly... We are going to say things that go against what the Bible says. And so to know God according to who he is, R. Kent Hughes says this. We reverence God or hallow his name when our beliefs concerning him are worthy of him. We cannot hallow his name if we do not understand it. Specifically in the Lord's Prayer, we must understand his Abba fatherhood. The deeper our, our understanding, the more depth there will be to our reverence. It is all the work of the Holy Spirit, of course, but we must yield to that work. We understand the depth and wonder of saying, Abba, Father, only through the Holy Spirit. Is God your dearest Father? So by having good doctrine and beliefs concerning Him are worthy of Him and are derived from and rooted in and flow from the Scriptures read the way the scriptures tell us to read them.
It is also not simply knowing this, but it is also declaring this. First Peter chapter two, verses nine and ten. He says this of his people, speaking to Gentile believers. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Of all these things, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. What's the purpose of that? So that you might declare his praises. Might declare who he is, that we might declare who he is in our prayers, that we might declare who he is in our words to one another and those who don't know him. What we do when we gather on Sunday is enlarge, declaring who God is, that we might be drawn to him continually. We recognize this, according from Psalm 48, Great is the Lord, and he is greatly to be praised. And we are also praying that we might live in such a way that we would exalt his name. Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'm going to summarize, but you can go there. In Ezekiel chapter 36, he's promising a new thing. And he says, I'm doing this not for your sake, but because you have profaned my name. I'm doing this for the sake of my name. For the actions that profaned his name. And so through our actions, we might glorify him. We're going to touch on that in a little bit. Again, from 1 Peter chapter 2. But we're also praying with regards to others. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. That they might testify of God's character to me and to one another. To the one praying and to each other. And to exhort one another in the faith. And teach the faith. Also, we're praying that with regards to unbelievers. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, right after saying, he exhorts them as aliens and sojourners, as travelers. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's a word for us to do honor Lord in our conduct, including before men that they might glorify God on the day of visitation. But notice what the purpose here is to glorify God on the day of visitation. The day in which the gospel visits, they might glorify God. That's the way I read that day of visitation. And then we look at Psalm, we can look at Psalm 150, which we'll be getting to in the not too distant future in our weekly readings of scripture. 
But the 150th Psalm closes with this note of glorifying God. It says, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and, and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Everything, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So we are praying for all peoples to praise the Lord. In, clo- in closing, I want us to think in these regards as an application of this. I mentioned earlier that prayer is often very hard work. Often because when we go to the Lord in prayer for somebody, or maybe with their illness, or maybe we just are praying for them. You have a list of people to pray for. And you don't necessarily know what's going on, but you want to pray for them. And you say, Lord, would you bless them and help them? And we're thinking, how do I pray for them? It's often difficult to know how to pray. Remember what we said earlier. Think of all the requests that are in this disciple's prayer. They are all tempered and guided by this. Hallowed be your your name. And we find it hard to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ when they do. Or when we do have specific, when they do have specific requests. We can remember this and pray this, Lord. Let your name be hallowed to them. And whatever else is going on and whatever else they are experiencing, that in what is happening with them right now, whether it's something we know or not, we say, let your name be hallowed in them and before them and by them. When we pray for unbelievers, I was listening to um, listening to someone online who was uh, talking about this um, petition. He was walking through the um, Baptist Catechism, and he was on this particular petition. He was giving his thoughts on it, and he was talking about how when he prayed for his parents that they might come to faith in Christ, and he thought he prayed so. It would be so great if they came, he prayed for a while. It would be so great if they came to faith in Christ. That way we can pray together and we can talk about Jesus together. And he was talking about how much he enjoyed that. But then he started reading this, Hallowed be your name. And he, he said, this brought a whole new depth of my prayers for them to, that they might come to faith in Christ. Bring them to faith in Christ, O Lord, that my mom and dad, that they might hallow your name that your name might be hallowed before them. It brought a whole new level of depth and intensity to his prayers for them. And regardless of what we're praying with regards to ourselves or others, we have this, hallowed be your name. Let us pray. Our Father, having heard this, We ask, O Lord, as we depart from here today, that in what we do and what we say, let your name be hallowed.
in the things we engage in this week. Let your name be hallowed. In our relationships with others, let your name be hallowed. In our prayers, O Lord, let your name be hallowed. Among those whom we know who don't know you, may we live in such a way and proclaim Christ so that in them and among them, your name would be hallowed. We pray these things, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.